Hey everyone, happy Easter. It's great to be with you this morning. I was a bit worried when I walked into church this morning and I saw that we were dividing our church into the good and the bad with the signs that were here. It was particularly worrying at the 9am service because that side filled up and this side was empty at the start. Thankfully it sorted itself out later. I don't know what that said about people and their view of themselves, but anyway. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to consider together how wonderful is the death of Jesus. So uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together this Good Friday and remind one another, or perhaps come to hear for the first time for some, uh, the wonderful news, the strange news, that the death of Jesus is actually how he saved humanity. And so we pray that you will help us to understand that better this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as a family, recently we've been watching some of the new Star Wars shows on uh, Disney. Uh, and I must admit, admit it has been a very disappointing experience for me. Uh, not wanting to be a reviewer and all that sort of thing. But uh, I grew up in the era of Star Wars and I don't mean the new stuff. Uh, the first movie I remember seeing was Star Wars. My, my mother tells me I saw Dot and the Kangaroo, but I must have been too little to remember it or it didn't strike me as interesting. But uh, Star Wars was everything for me growing up. Every birthday, every Christmas, we would get Star Wars figures. Uh, I wish I had them now because apparently they're worth a lot of money, but I got rid of them years ago. Uh, anyway, I had an older brother and uh, whenever we played games, he always, because he's the older brother, got to choose who to be. So if we played cricket, he was Australia, I was England, you know. And, and in Star Wars... He always wanted to be Luke Skywalker, which was okay by me because I always wanted to be Han Solo. And I think history has judged my choice better, if you know Star Wars. He wanted to be the guy with the whiny voice who didn't go on to anything. I wanted to be Harrison Ford. I wanted to be the, uh, the criminal who turned out to be a good guy. You know, so I think history has proven me right. Uh, but I want to know, who did you want to be growing up? You know, which character in the story did, did you want to be? Uh, maybe, I'm not one to judge, maybe you wanted to be a Disney princess, I don't know. But uh, I asked Victoria this, uh, for her it was Liesl in The Sound of Music, because that, that says something about our movie choices, or uh, Dorothy in, I was going to say Dot and the Kangaroo, but in The Wizard of Oz. I had never seen The Wizard of Oz until we got married. And Victoria said, you've got to watch... I was telling her, you've got to watch Star Wars. She was saying, you've got to watch The Wizard of Oz. I had nightmares for weeks. It's, it's like a horror film with <laughs> flying monkeys and witches. And anyway, I, Star Wars, anyway, much better. The thing is, though, when you read a story or when you see a movie, the, the character you empathise with says something about you. It actually says something about who you think you are, I think, and who you want to be. Uh, and, and so a good writer or a good actor gets you to make that connection. They make you want to empathise, connect with a particular character in the story so that you put yourself in their shoes and so that it impacts you uh, emotionally as you're reading it or watching it. But with it being Good Friday, we read before just part of the crucifixion account of Jesus. And please have that uh, out on your, your outline there. Uh, this is taken from Luke's Gospel. Now, Luke was writing history. So he's not like a novelist or a director of a movie. He was writing what happened. But as we read it, I, I wonder if you were sort of connected with any of the characters, if there were characters who you empathise with, because I think we're meant to in this story. So as we look at the story together again, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to go through the story and look at it. Uh, I want us to think about who we empathise with, who we connect with. Now understand, we're picking up the story late in proceedings. Before this, 
Jesus has been horribly abused. Before this, he has been whipped, he has been mocked, he has been spat upon. Crucifixion was designed to be barbaric. That was the point of it. It was designed to be barbaric because it was designed to be humiliating. It was designed to to, to be a sign to everyone else. This is what will happen to you if you follow what these people have done. And so as Jesus comes to the point of his actual crucifixion, it reaches its most barbaric, humiliating moments. So let's start at verse 32. It tells us two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. Now, it's really important to see this. Jesus was crucified with the dregs of society. Uh, No one had found a legitimate charge against Jesus. Famously, Pilate washed his hands of Jesus because he said, this man is innocent. You you can't prove anything about him. But he was so weak that he didn't want to upset the crowds. And so he said, take him, kill him. I don't care, even though he's innocent. So here is Jesus and he is led out with the criminals to be executed. We're not told what these two other men had done, probably something very serious, perhaps they were murderers or robbers, possibly insurrectionists, you know, they committed treason or something like that. But here is Jesus, effectively declared to be the same as them. Uh, This is humiliating, that's what it's meant to be. Let's go on, look at verse 33. It says, when they arrived at the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, and can you you think of a better name for a place to, to execute people than the Skull? They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. It's really interesting. It's just so matter of fact. They just, it just says they crucified him there. And that's because when this was first written, still within the lifetime of the, the eyewitnesses who had watched it, they knew what happened when someone was crucified. They didn't need a, a graphic description of nails being hammered in. Just saying they crucified him was enough for the people there. But then Jesus says one of his most famous lines he ever said. Look at verse 34. It says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And I think that line there is just about the most incredible sentence ever said. An innocent man having nails driven through his wrists and driven through his ankles, and he says, Please forgive them. Please forgive these people who are doing this to me. And here's the first point where where we might be tempted to put ourselves in someone else's shoes in the story. We all know we're here at church on Good Friday. We know Jesus is the hero. So you might have been thinking as I start talking about that, yeah, I'm with Jesus in this story. The truth is, I don't think any of us would have acted like Jesus did here. We would have screamed blue murder as they hammered nails into our wrists and ankles. I would have yelled out, there's been a mistake. You know, get someone else. God God will judge you for this. That's what I would have been yelling. Don't you understand? I'm the son of God. I'm going to get even with you. I wouldn't be saying, I forgive you. Jesus doesn't. He offers grace. He offers forgiveness, even to the people tormenting him. But even as he does that, they humiliate him further. They take his clothes and they stand there casting lots, rolling dice, to see who gets each part of his clothes, who gets the robe, who gets the tunic, who gets whatever else. And that takes us to the second group of characters in the story that we might empathise with and that we might call the mockers. Uh, You see, the humiliation didn't stop there. Crucifixion was designed to be a public event. That's why they took him to a hill outside the town and they did it and they got everyone to come out and watch. People were encouraged to go and yell abuse at the victims. That was part of the deterrent of it. 
And yelling abuse was a, a way of showing you were a good citizen. Sort of like at the footy when people yell abuse at the opposition team. It's designed to show, I go for the other one, you know, that sort of thing. So here as Jesus hangs on the cross, even here people don't leave him alone. Look at verse 35. The people stood watching and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Understand, this is just the crowd of people watching on. They've got no skin in this game, but still they mock him. They make me think of people today who love to share their opinions online, you know, from behind a computer screen. It's very easy to yell abuse at a person nailed to a cross. But even fools and cowards can sometimes say something profound, and that's the beauty of what happened here. See, they said, hey, Jesus, you talked a lot about saving other people. For three years, we've heard you marching around the countryside talking about how you're going to save people. Well, you're not much of a saviour if you can't save yourself. And I hope you see their unintentional, incredible irony in what they said. He couldn't have saved himself. He could have saved himself. He's the son of God. He could have called down a thousand angels and said, here you go, take me down. Here I am, I'm free. But the point is, if he saved himself, then he wouldn't have saved others. He wouldn't have saved them and he wouldn't have saved us. Because it was precisely by his death that Jesus was paying the price for our salvation. In his death, Jesus was taking the punishment of God that we deserve upon himself. That was the irony. If he was going to be God's Messiah, to be the saviour, he had to die. To save others, he could not save himself. Next thing that happened, the Roman soldiers joined in mocking Jesus and they put an inscription above his head. You see it there in caps uh, on your outline. If you see it, they put it above his head and it said, this is the king of the Jews. And you can see what they were doing. This was mockery as well. On the one hand, it was a political message to the Jewish people. Here's what happens if you think you can be king. Here's what happens if you think you can oppose Caesar and Rome. But more than that, it was just making fun of Jesus. Because if there is anyone who's clearly not a king, it's a naked man hanging on a cross. But again, from the mouths of his enemies, there's an incredible irony, and I hope you see it. Because Jesus was doing what God had said his king would do all along. We read before from the prophet Isaiah, our first reading, writing 800 years before the coming of Jesus. And he talked about the one who God would send who would suffer for the sins of others, who would die for the sins of others. You see, they thought as they hammered that sign above his head, they thought they were mocking Jesus. But actually they were saying something incredible. Here is the king. But this king is unlike any other king the world has ever known. Most kings lord it over people. Most kings will do anything to stay in power. But here is the real king, the son of God, who loves the world so much that he's willing to die for us. That is a king worth believing in. That is a king worth following. But of course, they didn't see the irony. And so the humiliation continues. Watch along in the passage there. Even one of the criminals crucified next to him joins in in yelling abuse and again we think that's not us we think that's not us in the story we don't like to paint ourselves with the mockers but in a way every one of us is represented by these people we might mock God and Jesus openly but every person has certainly failed to honor God as we should every one of us has failed to stand up for the weak 
and the oppressed. Every one of us has failed to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Be very, very careful not to stand in judgment over these mockers because we have to ask, would I have been different if I was there that morning? But there was one person who didn't join in and it's one of the least likely people. It wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. They'd all run away and abandoned Jesus at this point. It was the criminal crucified on the other side of Jesus. And you just imagine the scene. Here's Jesus in the middle On one side of him is a man yelling abuse at him, even as he's nailed to the cross. But then the other criminal stops and thinks. In Matthew's gospel, it suggests that he actually started abusing Jesus at the start, but but had a change of heart. At some point he stopped. Maybe I think it might have been what Jesus said about forgiveness that might have made him think. But in any event, he alone, of everyone there, stepped in for Jesus. And so he calls out the other criminal. He says, don't you get it? Don't you fear God? We're about to die and we're going to be, we're going to face God today. And can't you see, we're getting what we deserve. We're, We're criminals. This man has done nothing wrong. And so he turns to Jesus and he says something incredibly profound. Look at verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I hope you can see what he's saying there. He alone, of everyone there, he alone is saying, Jesus, you are the king. You are the king. The sign above your head, they meant it to mock you, but it's right. You are God's son. And even though I don't deserve anything from you, please welcome me into your kingdom. Please remember me. Please include me. Every other person that day either abandoned Jesus or mocked Jesus. They mocked the idea that he could be a king. They mocked the idea that he could offer salvation. This criminal says, Jesus, please save me. And he's not asking Jesus to take him down from the cross. He knows he's dying. And he frankly knows he doesn't deserve it. He wants something better. He wants a hope beyond this life. He wants forgiveness, a hope beyond the grave. Give me a place in your kingdom. And Jesus' answer is, I think, one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. Look with me, right down the bottom of the passage, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said, you have a place in my kingdom. You have what we call eternal life. I do forgive you. I offer you salvation. I offer you hope beyond the grave. I started by asking who we think we are in this story, but I hope it is obvious who God wants you to be in this story. Uh, God wants us to be like this criminal because he alone does what every person, what every one of us should do when we meet Jesus, when we hear about Jesus. He recognises who Jesus is. He recognises Jesus is God's King, the Son of God, the only one who can offer eternal life. I want to say to you, how much more should we recognise who Jesus is? He got to see just Good Friday. We know the full story. We've heard about Easter Sunday. We know God raised Jesus from the dead. We have the eyewitness accounts of the New Testament. Surely we should recognise that Jesus is God's King. But the second thing this man does is he recognises the truth about himself. He recognises his own sin and failure. He doesn't try to say to Jesus, yes, I'm a criminal, but, but, but remember me because I went to church and loved my mother. 
He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, yes, I'm a criminal, but, but you've got to understand I had a really tough upbringing and I've got all sorts of excuses. No, God is not impressed by people who think God owes them something. God is not impressed by people who think they can impress God by, by what they do or by people who try to justify their sin. God is impressed by people who recognise I do not deserve eternal life and then come to God humbly seeking forgiveness. See, unless we admit that we have not honoured God as he deserves, unless we admit that we haven't lived to please him, unless we admit that we have not loved our neighbour as ourselves, unless we do that, there is no hope for us. One of the most shocking things Jesus often said is that there will be plenty of self-righteous religious people in hell because they thought they could earn their way. They thought they could impress God by their religiousness or whatever else. No, what God wants is people like this criminal. What God wants is people who recognise our sin and ask Jesus for forgiveness. And that is what this man did. He placed his trust in Jesus. And so we're meant to ask at the end of this story, is this me? That's the point of this story. We're meant to ask, is this me? Have I recognised who Jesus is? Have I admitted my own sin and my own failure? And have I turned to Jesus for forgiveness and hope. And I hope you see why that last sentence is so wonderful and so profound. Look at it again. Today, you will be with me in paradise. See, it is so profound because it is a message of pure grace. You see, this man had no time to impress God with his religion. Jesus didn't say, yeah, go and do some good things and I might see you there. This man had no time to try to do anything to outweigh all the bad that he'd done. He just had time to turn to Jesus and trust in him. And the question of Good Friday is always the same one. Have we turned to Jesus and trusted in him like this man has? I pray you have. And if you've not done that, I pray you take some time this Easter to consider the claims of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful message of Good Friday that you loved us so much that you sent your son into the world to be our saviour and that Jesus did not stand on his rights but instead was willing to die even though he was innocent, die to take the punishment for our sin. And so we pray that we would not sit with the mockers but instead we would be like this criminal who turned to Jesus and so found the hope of eternal life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.